This is The Dish, the official podcast of the National Reconnaissance Office, brought to you by the NRO's Office of Public Affairs. Hello and welcome to The Dish. I'm James Alson with the NRO's uh, Center for the Study of National Reconnaissance, or CSNR. Today I'm joined by Dr. Margaret Weidekamp, Chief of the Space History Department for the National Air and Space Museum. And we're glad to have you with us uh, here today. Um, I'd like to just begin with an uh, initial question. Could you tell us about your primary responsibilities as chair of space history? Sure. So the National Air and Space Museum has three scholarly departments uh, of curators. We have a group of us who are in space history, a group who are in aeronautics, and a group called the Center for Earth and Planetary Studies um, that are planetary geologists who are um, working on the real science of uh, spaceflight. And so the space history department is about a dozen historians who are topically dividing up kind of space history so that we're responsible for um, the various artifacts that we have. And then we essentially take turns being chair of the department, uh, much like an academic department at a college or university. And um, uh, I'm in charge then of, um, of hiring and, you know, figuring out who's on what committees and how we're going to get all of this uh, exhibit work done over the next few years. So it's been a real privilege to get to work with that amazing group of scholars. Oh, I'm sure it is. Typically, the DISH interviews uh, members of the NRO community to discuss their positions in the organization. However, we wanted to open the conversation up with our partners and starting with the Air and Space Museum. Uh, can you explain to our listeners the relationship with the NRO and specifically CSNR, the relationship that you have with us? Well, the National Air and Space Museum is delighted to have this relationship with the NRO um, because uh, national security space is such an important part of the story that we want to tell to our visitors. And as much as space history is often hard to illustrate with artifacts because the real things are out there in space, um, and we have to then figure out what are the objects that allow us to tell those stories back here on Earth, that's even more so the story with national security space, when for a long time, a lot of these technologies are classified. So we're delighted to have this relationship where we've been able to talk to folks on uh, the CSNR side. And then also these loans have really been very important for being able to bring those stories to our visitors, both in the physical museum and on our website. Okay, thank you. Um, the NRO has been loaning items to the Air and Space Museum for nearly two decades. Uh, what are some of the items that the Air and Space Museum has on display currently from the NRO? And uh, how, how does the public respond to those items that are on exhibit? So one of the first things that we have on exhibit is a Corona film return capsule. Um, looks like a big bucket. It's kind of gold in color, uh, shiny on the outside, and it holds a gigantic reel of film because um, you remember that you had to take pictures on physical celluloid film. And so NRO was really um, a leader and creative in thinking about how to take those pictures in space and then get them back to Earth in order to be able to process them. And so this is a film return capsule that would have separated uh, from the corona vehicle and come back, been caught midair, and then brought back and um, processed. And so I think when we can show our visitors that and tell them a little bit of that story, I think a current generation is amazed at what people were able to do with physical media. They so live in a world of digital imagery and being able to beam things from phone to phone. The idea that 
to get images from space, you needed to physically recall um, and recapture a whole roll of film is kind of amazing. And then we're always happy to be able to tell that story in a couple of different generations. So we have the Corona film return that was film that really took a broader picture of what was on Earth. And then we also have Gambit One, and that's um, on display in our uh, Space Race Gallery in the National Mall Building. And that was uh, really kind of coming in after taking a finer picture of things that might have been identified using the Corona system. So we were delighted to be the space where the hexagon was declassified. Um, And having that on our property, even for the day, uh, really had the historians a a Twitter with uh, excitement about that. And then really thinking about what are some possible future loans or acquisitions to be able to talk about signals intelligence as well as imagery, I think is important. And I think having the real thing really brings it home for our public and gives them a sense of what's been done in national security space. Just shifting gears a little bit, uh, prior to your current position, you also spent a year in residence uh, at NASA headquarters in their history office uh, in Washington, D.C. as an American Historical Association NASA Aerospace History Fellow. What was the experience like for you, and did your time there further your interest in space history? My time as a fellow at uh, NASA Headquarters History Office fundamentally changed the direction of my career. I had uh, trained as an undergraduate and as a graduate student as a women's historian, uh, so I was interested in the social and cultural history of the United States, particularly in the stories of women. And for my doctoral dissertation, I was writing a history of a women's astronaut testing project um, that happened in the late 1950s, early 1960s, a group of women pilots who were uh, invited by the same physician who was doing the testing for NASA for the Mercury program to see whether women could be um, suitable in space. In some ways, he's tremendously visionary, right? Thinking even before any human being had gone into space about uh, men and women on large orbiting satellites, space stations that would be doing reconnaissance and research and all kinds of uh, space functions. And in some ways, he's very much a product of his time, right? He can only picture doing that with uh, computers the size of a room, with physical people taking photos in person and then hand carrying the film back and forth. Um, And he also really was thinking uh, most of the support positions would need to be held by women. So your nurses, your secretaries, your telephone operators, we're going to need to know if women can do this. So I was really approaching the story as a women's historian. And the opportunity to be at NASA headquarters, I thought, would allow me to kind of develop the space side of the story. And really, I fell in love with the breadth of that and the complexity of space history. A doctoral program often forces you to really, the exercise is to become a super specialist in something. And I loved the way that space history required you to grapple with the science, the technology, the politics, the culture, the personalities of who was involved, all at the same time, um, and really got interested in that. And when I went back to my work after that, I started teaching some courses in space history and science fiction. And that really is directly what led to my having the resume that would allow me to take the position that I have as the curator for the social and cultural history of spaceflight collection at the museum. So it was a fundamental turn um, in my career, and it's something I'm grateful for to this day. 
What were some of the uh, highlights that came from uh, your dissertation research? It's a fascinating uh, subject there to explore the differences between men and women in these early days of the space program. Uh, what are the highlights? It was fascinating to get to meet the women who had actually gone through the tests. At the time, um, they were not well known, and nobody had really spoken to them in depth. So I drove all over the country and, you know, gathered documents and put them in the back of my car and did interviews on uh, cassette tapes and transcribed them and got to talk to them. But really looking at the physiological differences that the scientists were interested in, I was struck by how much some of those are very scientifically based. Women um, do better and did better in the 50s and into the 1960s on isolation testing. Um, but I think there was also kind of a cultural layer there where there was an expectation that women would be able to sit still in a way that you simply couldn't ask a jet test pilot to just sit there. Uh, men would need to be more active. So I think that interplay between what was found in terms of the science and what was possible in terms of the politics and then this kind of cultural layer. This testing happened just ahead of the beginnings of the second wave of the women's movement in the United States. So in some ways, um, when that program was canceled and when they wanted to get it restarted, the kind of political apparatus that would support women's rights or women's issues didn't really exist yet. So, you know, the National Organization for Women is not founded until 1966, and this program is really done um, by 61, 62. So that part of it was really interesting to me to kind of look at what was possible in terms of spaceflight and then what was possible in terms of politics. Because you also have... Um, Kennedy gets up before a joint session of Congress in 1961 and says, we're going to the moon. And all of a sudden, this kind of might have, might have been a moment of experimentation at NASA kind of focuses in on, does it feed the moon program? And experimenting with whether women could survive spaceflight really didn't. So I've enjoyed primarily the chance to meet the women and hear their stories, um, but then just the chance to dig into archives across the country and try to piece this story together uh, was a really fun project for a budding historian. Let me just ask you one more quick question about your dissertation. One of the great experiences of, of preparing a dissertation is interviewing, and you hear all kinds of incredible experiences and stories. Uh, is there a story or two that uh, kind of comes to mind uh, from meeting with these women who in some ways were pioneers uh, in, in this early space program effort? I will say that they had been interviewed often by media and then dismayed to find that their stories were often very misconstrued. So Jerry Cobb, who was the first woman to go through these tests, was uh, often dismayed. They would focus on she has a blonde ponytail. They literally would publish her measurements like she was some sort of Miss America contestant um, in Newsweek. Um, so as an historian trying to come in, I often felt like um, there was a whole process where you needed to kind of establish your credentials to be trusted with this story when they felt like it had so often been um, told in ways that didn't flatter them and that were just misconstrued. And so uh, it would also come down a lot of times to women saying, you know, who have you talked to? 
And I would list off, you know, I've talked to these different women who already, and they would say, all right, they don't know what they're talking about. Let me tell you what really happened. But it was also a sense of being passed along. Okay, you know, you get a clear sense you'd spent a day or two with somebody and that she would be calling, she was asking, who's next on your list? And then she would be calling them to say, okay, she's okay. Um, She seems to know what she's doing. But it took some time. Um, I was young. I was in my mid-20s at the time probably about the same age the women were themselves when they were going through the tests. But the idea that I was somehow an historian and was going to pull all of this story together um, took a little bit of uh, proving yourself. And I actually went and took flying lessons. Not a ton, a little bit of ground school, a little time in the air, but enough to be able to talk to pilots without seeming like I didn't know my way around a cockpit at all. And that was important for them because they identified first and foremost as pilots. Yes, thank you. Um, well, you went on to, uh, to publish uh, in several different uh, areas. Uh, you've written many publications to include an award-winning uh, children's book uh, called Pluto's Secret, An Icy World's Tale of Discovery. And you've also written quite a few scholarly articles to include uh, Right Stuff, Wrong Sex, uh, America's First Women in the Space Program, which won you uh, Eugene M. Emmy Award uh, for Astronautical Literature from the American Astrological Society. Can you tell us about some of your favorite publications that uh, you've authored and any other planned publications that you have? So obviously, I'm very proud of Right Stuff, Wrong Sex. That came out of the dissertation, was a chance to kind of turn that into a book, and it has done very well. And, uh, you know, I was very excited to see Wally Funk uh, go into space with Blue Origin just this past summer. She's one of the people who I interviewed for that project, so it was nice to see that arc finally completed. Um, I have written a children's book about the uh, reclassification of Pluto, uh, which was really came up in the course of my work at the museum, talking to my colleagues who work in planetary science and astronomy. And then I've written a lot really based on my work at the museum. So a fun one is a piece that I did about space shuttle toys and looking at the ways that uh, when you change the technology into a toy, it not only gets changed in ways that make it more playable, proportions of the image of the object of the technology themselves become childlike. Um, And it's similar to a set of mathematical proportions that you see in like Walt Disney or that is part of what makes puppies cute as opposed to wolves, right? So the shortened nose, the bigger eyes, the um, change, uh, shortened chin, higher forehead. And what was fun was looking at space shuttle toys and the ways that even if it was a flat puzzle where you really could have just superimposed the image of the actual orbiter, it gets a little shorter, a little fatter. The windows end up a little proportionally bigger and it kind of looks cuter and more baby-like when it gets changed into a toy. So over the course of my now 17 years at the museum, I've just finished and I'm sending it to press a book called Space Craze that looks at Americans' fascination with spaceflight, um, both real and imagined. So combining my interest in space science fiction with what I know about um, actual space history and looking at that specifically through the lens of the kinds of objects that have been created, whether those are toys or T-shirts or mugs, pins and buttons, and all of the many ways that we have celebrated celebrated and remembered spaceflight. And so um, I'm excited to have that coming out this fall. Could you just share a highlight or two out of uh, that uh, the book that will be coming out? 
So in the 1980s, I start the chapter with my search for a Cabbage Patch Kid that was done in the Young Astronauts line. Um, and that was a part of a program. The Young Astronauts program was organized by NASA, the White House, and actually the National Air and Space Museum at the time to promote interest in spaceflight for kids. Um, the idea being that this generation of latchkey kids in the 1980s, um, that Generation X, needed something to kind of get them connected with science and technology and all of these things that were going to be their future. And so there was actually, as a part of that, the Cabbage Patch Kids, which were these very popular dolls in the 1980s, had a young astronaut's line where the Cabbage Patch Kid came in a little spacesuit and the box was kind of shaped like a, uh, a spacecraft. And um, ultimately, the one that I was looking for was one that was given to Ronald Reagan at a White House ceremony. Um, and what I found after months of research is instead of putting it in the presidential gifts collection, which would then have it at the National Archives Center um, out at the Reagan Library, they gave it to a toy drive. So somewhere, some kid <laughs> in like 1985, <laughs> when they got a young astronaut's Cabbage Patch kid, got the one that was physically handed to Ronald Reagan on the lawn of the White House, <laughs> and it showed up for them as a result of a charity toy drive. Um, so sometimes the uh, stories about artifacts are about ones that we have in the museum, and sometimes they're about the ones that get away. Well, it sounds like Americans need to go check their closets yes. for the, and see what they have there from the 80s. Uh, uh, you are one of the nation's foremost experts uh, on women in space. As it is uh, Women's History Month, can you talk about some of the most uh, influential women in space history? Uh, so I had the privilege of, I've never met Dr. Ride, Dr. Sally Ride, but I was privileged to be one of the people who went to her home after her untimely death in 2012, was able to help to bring her archives and her um, artifacts into the collection of the Smithsonian, the National Air and Space Museum. Um, and I think that's really important because symbolically, you know, in addition to her actual accomplishments um, as a very talented astronaut um, and as someone who was so trusted by NASA that she's the only person who was on both the Rogers Commission after the loss of the Challenger and the Columbia Accident Investigation Board after the loss of the Columbia in 2003. So um, she had all of these real accomplishments, but just the symbol of seeing a woman an American woman as a part of a spaceflight crew was, I think, so eye-opening for people in the early 1980s. So I was delighted to be able to bring that into our collection to tell the story of her as a physicist, of her as an astronaut, um, and uh, also of Sally Ride Science, the company that uh, she and her partner created to try to get kids interested in science. So, um, and we really try to keep those relationships with the real people going. So Kathy Sullivan is another person who's a part of her collection has come to the museum, uh, the first American woman to do a spacewalk, um, the former head of the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. So a, a bona fide scientist, um, a very accomplished astronaut, and um, just being able to have those things that begin to 
tell that story. It wasn't something we thought we were going to get, but um, when we were working with Dr. Sullivan on bringing her stuff in, she had a collection of challenge coins. And we, in the military services, a challenge coin is often exchanged as a symbol of a unit or um, uh, an organization and can be given in congratulations, can be given kind of to mark a visit uh, or an exchange, a meeting. And the museum really didn't have challenge coins in the collection. So I'm delighted that we get them from some Someone who has that Navy background that Dr. Sullivan does, but also to have it come to us through a woman astronaut, not necessarily um, very much a part of her practice of, of her work and what she was doing, but not necessarily where we would have thought that was that kind of thing would have begun to come into the collection. Well, through your professional experience, uh, you have a really uh, unique vantage point. Um, And looking ahead to sort of future generations, do you have uh, any advice for women in STEM fields, uh, given that uh, most STEM occupations are still occupied by, by males? So I think we're seeing changes in the pipeline in terms of women and girls interested in STEM, and we're seeing uh, that coming up through high schools, through colleges. I think the programs that encourage girls to uh, see themselves in these fields, um, also, you know, people of color, all, you know, to... um, find their way into that. That's important. I think my own personal bit of advice is always um, anything you can learn turns out to be handy. Um, I, you know, I'm an historian, uh, not a scientist or uh, an engineer, but I took a couple semesters of drafting in high school, mostly because I hated study hall. I couldn't stand to just sit there. Um, I'd rather do my homework on my own time than have to just sit and do it in school and had the opportunity to take drafting. And it turns out to be tremendously useful to be able to read blueprints if you turn out to be a museum curator. Um, And it's come in handy occasionally where I can say, no, 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 on page nine, notice this is made of box metal and it's welded in these points and the folks of the collection staff are like she didn't realize she could read the blueprints I guess I can and that says something to me about how we need to store it so um, I think those kinds of things um, you know I've mentioned taking a couple of flying lessons in order to be able to better uh, speak to the people I wanted to write the history of but I just think all kinds of bits of uh, training that you can pick up even if it doesn't seem like it's going to be immediately useful, I find it often circles back around and turns out to be handy to have a little bit of language or a little bit of technical training or to have some exposure to things to just be able to ask the right questions. So that kind of, if you can keep that curiosity alive and take advantage of trainings when they present themselves or when you see an opportunity to go after them, I think that's good in any field. When you think about the successful uh, women in space that you've interviewed and worked with, what would you say were the key characteristics that led to their success? So one of the things that I think is that when we talk about women in space, we often end up focusing on astronauts. But that field is much, much bigger than that. And I think that what you find is the importance of mentoring, of being able to find men or women who can 
kind of mentor the generation after them and bring people forward. When you start talking to the first women in fields or often the second women in a field, it's the importance then of someone seeing them as capable of giving them real assignments, of advancing them based on their real accomplishments. And sometimes uh, it's the importance not just of the first woman in the room, but the second woman in the room to demonstrate that that wasn't some super star who was doing something different than what everybody else can do, but just demonstrating, no, women can be taken and should be taken seriously in the field. So I think that um, when you look at the characteristics, it's often of, um, you know, being able to claim and be recognized for your accomplishments also, being able to make sure that um, your name gets attached to the project where you made a big difference and not kind of always swept into the whole group. I think that makes a difference for women being able to be recognized and then uh, advanced for what they're doing. When you think about the women in your own life that have uh, inspired you, whether they're famous or not, what did they teach you and how did they teach you? So I will say that I'm a women's historian because of Professor Maureen Greenwald at uh, the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, I started as a freshman and didn't know what I was going to be interested in, and so was encouraged to kind of take what looked interesting and ended up in her upper-level women's history class because that looked interesting. And she didn't allow first-year students in that class, but she didn't realize I was a first-year until after I had aced her first test. So she let me stay, and... um, that, I would say, where she was really influential, she was she's one of those professors is like the hardest one you've ever had. And so you killed yourself to try to live up to that standard. And I think there's something to being exacting in that way. The requirements in terms of argument, analysis, evidence, being able to really build a historical argument based on primary sources or interpreting secondary works and pulling all of that together into something that was tightly written and well-argued, really shaped, uh, got me interested in history and shaped my approach to things. And so I would say, you know, she was uh, great in that and also responsive that, you know, when I came to her at some point, we were having a conversation. I said, you know, as is often true in uh, U.S. history classes, you know, it says to the present in your class title, but really we don't get past like the 60s or 70s. And this was at that time in the 90s. So she developed a new seminar and said, like, all right, we're going to do the last, like, 20 years and worked with the University Honors College at the University of Pittsburgh, which is a great structure for being able to have professors create specialty classes like that, and said, all right, that's it. We'll just, you know, instead of trying to race from the end of the Civil War to the present in a semester, we're just going to focus on the uh, last 20, 30 years of history. And um, that kind of responsiveness and interest in her own curiosity of digging into things and saying, yeah, we haven't done it this way. Let's see what we could do. Made a very strong impression on me and, um, and has some ways guided what I've tried to do as a teacher and as a scholar. We've kind of looked back on the past up to this point. Uh, Let me just ask you a question about the future. What do you anticipate the future of space will look like for women and overall? So I think we're seeing from NASA and also from other parts of the space world a real interest in tapping into the full range of talents that are represented by having a diverse workforce. that We now know the science supports that more diverse groups are more creative, they're more responsive, they're more productive. And I think 
if you look into the past uh, when you would have had a kind of all-white male astronaut corps, for instance, that was seen as the tip of the pyramid. These are the best of the best, the cream of the crop. And I think now we see that as this field has developed in a slightly different way, that that was not necessarily always taking advantage of um, all of the talents that were out there because we had systems that were built to kind of winnow that out. So I think that Part of what will be nice will be the moments that where remarkable things happen uh, between accomplished women, and it's not the first, it's not needed to be celebrated. So there was a moment when Peggy Whitson was the commander of the International Space Station, and a mission uh, came up with Pam Melroy as the commander of that space shuttle mission, and you had two women uh, meeting in space as uh, co-commanders of of that because that's who was up in the rotation, because they were capable and competent and they were doing the work. You see that similarly in the all-women spacewalk. There was one initially planned a couple of years ago, and there was going to be a lot of hoopla around it. And in the end, uh, NASA canceled it. And when the all-women spacewalk happened, both two women going out at the same time, it was ultimately just because that was who was up in the rotation and um, who was going to be best qualified in an interesting way. The one that was canceled was actually canceled because astronaut Anne McLean had initially agreed that she would wear a larger spacesuit for the second one, uh, the second spacewalk, which would allow two women to be out at the same time. And after she did her first spacewalk, she said, you know, I'm not going to be comfortable. I'm not going to be as productive. I'm not going to be as safe in the large. I want to wear the medium. They only had one medium ready. That meant they couldn't do the all-women spacewalk. And in some ways... NASA took a black eye in terms of public relations in order to respect their astronauts' choice about what would make her safest and most productive. And I think that in its own way is a kind of achievement in terms of, um, you know, I know an earlier generation would have felt like I need to demonstrate that the astronaut would have felt like I need to push myself out of my comfort zone in order to demonstrate that I am capable. And this is an astronaut instead, uh, Anne McLean, who is secure in her role as a professional and able to say, like, that pushes me too far. I'm not going to do it. And she knew that she wouldn't be professionally penalized for that, that they would, as an organization, see that as her proactively uh, drawing of a, a boundary that needed to be drawn. So um, I think one of the things that we look for going forward is really the full inclusion and full participation of people's talents um, in ways that are going to allow not just diversity, but inclusion. Seeking a little bit more advice here. So for those men in the workforce uh, who are trying to be uh, more supported advocates, what advice would you give them to be better allies? Some of it starts from the basic idea that women are competent professionals and should be treated as such. So I think that, you know, hearing women's voices at the table the same way that anyone else's is respected is a really important thing. I think that you start to see increasingly generations that are coming up now that have always had women, not only in the room, but in power in the room, uh, running the room. The places where you get um, a majority of women just because that's who's good at doing the work, I think is going to be some ways its own marker. But I think that um, 
the need for women's suggestions to be credited not just to the team but to them and to be respected and followed um, is really important. I think um, a lot of professional women still have had the experience of throwing an idea out and having it kind of land flat or be um, ignored, and then uh, some guy in the room comes up with the same idea 10 minutes later, and everyone thinks, oh, this is brilliant. Um, I think being able to hear it the first time is important, and sometimes that may require an ally, man or woman, to kind of amplify it and say, wait a minute, I think she just said something that's really important. Let's stop and listen to that. I think that's important for anyone who wants to um, not only be an ally to women, but get the best out of any team. And what is something that everyone can do uh, to help break gender barriers? I think that doing your own thing and doing it well, I think it shows young people how folks can be passionate and interested and excited about what they're doing. So I think that when you have the opportunity not only to do your job well, but to come out and talk to people about, you know, what it is that you're doing. That gives, you know, we talk often to uh, school children in ways to try to kind of let them know about the different kinds of things that are happening at the museum or at the Smithsonian. You know, I think the public affairs um, at the NRO kind of getting that message out about um, the good that's being done for uh, the nation and the world is really important. So, and I think that that, um, does in important ways begin to change the perceptions for the next generation coming up. I've got um, three kids and I've had moments where, you know, uh, my sons or my daughter, the idea that anybody thought that girls weren't as good as boys in the past, just they have a moment of like, why would you think that? Um, you know, that's just not the um, the world they're growing up in and the uh, what they're seeing in front of them. And so I think that being able to let that generation uh, come in and bring those attitudes into a workplace, uh, into colleges and universities and beyond is going to be uh, important. Just one final question for you. Sure. Uh, if given the opportunity to go to space, would you go? Ah. Uh, yeah, I think it would be fascinating. Um, very struck by, you know, watching some of the new space tourism, the suborbital space tourism that really um, exploded onto the scene after years of preparation uh, this past summer where you had uh, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin, as well as SpaceX really doing these innovative things. And um, I was very struck. I'm a, a Star Trek fan and I work with science fiction objects when I'm at the museum. And um, I thought William Shatner came down and was just so eloquent about um, what a perspective-shifting experience it had been for him to get to go into space with um, Blue Origin. So I think uh, it's still very risky. And as somebody who follows this closely, I'm always very aware of that. Um, Spaceflight, especially human spaceflight, is something that doing it more doesn't necessarily make it safer or easier. But it's still undeniably appealing. I'm sure I'd love to see the Earth from space in person. Well, thank you, Dr. Wadekamp. It's just been a pleasure and an honor to have you here uh, today with us uh, for The Dish. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. The NRO provides reconnaissance support to the intelligence community and the Department of Defense and is dedicated to going above and beyond to protect our nation and its citizens.